Magazines and Monsters, Episode 8, Night of the Eagle. Hey everybody, Billy D, a.k.a. Doc Strange here, back with another film discussion with my buddy Herman Lowe. How are you, buddy? I'm great, thanks, Billy, man. Yeah, I'm always ready to talk some horror with you, especially on Magazines and Monsters, my favorite ever a uh, horror show <laughs> <laughs> i mean long box of darkness isn't doing much these days so this is kind of my default option but don't feel bad about that <laughs> <laughs> well you know we've been you know always bantering back and forth about movies and uh this is a this is our only outlet really for that so it's always a good time when we can get together and after i just had a couple of comic book episodes pop out because I didn't really have a whole lot going on with comics. Uh, it had been movies, movies, movies. So, you know, now that we got a couple of comic book recordings out of the way here for the show, uh, you and I are going to get back to talking some movies. And we have a really good one for today, huh? That's right. Um, do you want me to go ahead and introduce this bad boy? Yes, for sure. All right. This was your pick and you introduced it to me. And this is the first time I've watched it because it's not readily available on DVD or on Blu-ray. And I'm very glad you did introduce it to me because it's one of those seminal horror classics, but it should have wider distribution, you know, at least, um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, purchase wise. It's, I don't know if it's on Amazon Prime, but definitely not here where, where I'm in Taiwan. And this is specifically a movie called from 1962 called Night of the Eagle or by its other title, Burn Witch Burn. <laughs> <laughs> but we're going to go with Night of the Eagle, right, Billy? I think the ending of the movie sort of cements that title as my favorite. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. If you know sure. what I mean. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. So, Billy, I'll leave it to you to give us some more specs. But this is definitely a classic. You know, um, I, I'm curious to know how you first, uh, you know, came upon this movie in your younger days or recently. I'm, I'm not even sure. But, but this is ver a very recent watch for me. Yeah, for me, maybe 10, 15 years ago tops, I found out about this movie. Uh, I think what I did was in an effort to find more uh, British uh, films, especially horror films, horror sci-fi and stuff like that. Uh, I did, I don't know if it was just like something like a simple Google search or I went to the BBC website or something of that nature. And that is how I found um, quite a few because, you know, I'd been very familiar with Hammer and Amicus and didn't really know about some of these smaller studios. So I think that's how I found out about it. And I was like, Oh, this, you know, you see the name and you're thinking, huh, doesn't sound like a, you know, a, a horror film. But I thought to myself, well, I'm going to check this out. And then I looked it up on IMDb and I thought, wow, this sounds pretty cool. And then I looked at some of the names involved in it. Uh, and I was like, Oh wow, this sounds uh, right up my alley. And then, you know, as we're going to talk for a couple of minutes, Later on, you know, it's based off of a novel by uh, Fritz Lieber, who is somebody you're uh, well acquainted with. That's right. Yeah, he's probably one of my favorite golden age. Um, if, if you can consider the golden age of sci-fi, you know, kind of like we, we consider the comic book golden age. I mean, they did, in fact, call that the golden age of sci-fi. But I think the golden age of sci-fi started a little bit earlier than the comic book golden age. It started in the 1920s and 1930s. So he mm -hmm. was a little bit, he came after that. He was more... Um, active in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, and then even in the 70s and in the 80s as well. But but I'd say the 40s, 50s, and 60s was when he um, really made you know um, a name for himself, you know, as an author and as a uh, you know a screenwriter. Um, he even had uh, later. I'll mention something that uh, all geeks will be familiar with that Fritz Lieber had a hand in. 
mm-hmm. um, but I'll leave that till the end. So, Billy, yeah, that's definitely what got me into uh, watching this movie. Your recommendation and the fact that it was based off of a novel by Fritz Lieber. In fact, his very first novel, novel called Conjure Wife. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, yeah. He, he's, he's somebody that I had heard of and I knew he was like a, a big name from back in the day with, you know, horror and, you know, sword and sorcery, stuff like that. But I had never read any of his stuff, but I knew he was a big deal. You know, he was one of those names where even if you didn't read any of his stuff, you when you heard that name, you're like, oh, wait a minute. I've heard that name before because, you know, tons of people would mention that name who were, you know, inspired by him. And uh, yeah, he he was one of their favorite writers, like, you know, some of the comic book writers and artists we knew from the you know bronze and silver ages. Yeah, well, I mean, we could go a little bit into Lieber because he had uh, a lot to do with uh, with this film. You know, he was one of the screenwriters. Um, you know, so we'll mention the other. Uh, there was a, a heap of of famous screenwriters <laughs> on this movie, right, Billy? But yeah. you know, to to go into Fritz Lieber a little bit more, he was um, he. I think he started to write a little bit later in life, like at the age of thirty or so. Mm-hmm. You know, but yeah, he was a very interesting guy. He was. Um, for instance, not just a writer, he was a college teacher at first, and he was a chess champion. He was a fantastic chess player. He was also a fencing champion, at, at one point in his life, a preacher, and then <laughs> uh, a Shakespearean actor, and he even appeared on screen in the 1930s with Greta Garbo, you know, so... Crazy. Um, but, you know, what he's, I think, most known for is his fantasy and science fiction and horror, but um, he created two seminal fantasy characters, Fafford and the Grey Mouser, who are considered one of the high points. You know, their books are considered some of the high points of, of sword and sorcery and fantastic literature. Uh, but then, you know, I think um, if you can think about uh, Lieber's biggest payday, that probably came from his involvement with uh, the role-playing game Dungeons and Dragons, Billy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they licensed some of his ideas and his characters and his worlds to create the initial role-playing game, you know, Dungeons and Dragons. So mm-hmm. Fritz Lieber, you know, he lived a comfortable life afterwards because of, um, you know, the the profits he reaped off of that, you know, Dungeons and Dragons game. And, you know, so he's kind of like a George Lucas, <laughs> Star Wars merchandising <laughs> kind of deal. That's what he got. And, you know, so he was definitely a character, you know, not just in the realm of, of fiction and, and writing, but also, you know, in many other ways, in film and in the gaming universe. So <laughs> interesting guy. And then, you know, of course, this novel, Conjure Wife, being his first, he wrote a couple of other classic horror novels, too. One called um, Gather Darkness, which I really love. And then another one, which is like a, a classic, if you, if you think about a haunted locales, you know, like uh, haunted houses or haunted buildings in this case. It's one called Our Lady of Darkness. Mm. And that's a great novel as well. So, um, you know, all of these things uh, that he had gestating in his mind, you know, came out one way or another, either either through novels or short stories or films. So uh, interesting guy. But I think, you know, uh, you know, you might say that people always mention him these days, but I, I think he should have been a bigger deal. In fact, if you think about his output and his, um, you know, he's not as fondly remembered as people like, um, you know, Isaac Asimov or Arthur C. Clarke, for instance, or even Robert E. Howard, you know, the Conan Sword and Sorcery. So, you know, he wrote lots of sci-fi, he wrote lots of fantasy, but I think that's what, you know, people couldn't really pin him down. 
You know, he wrote in many genres, you know, even some detective stories and mystery stories, short stories that he wrote. So that's probably the reason why he's not as well known as he should be, actually. You know what I mean, Billy? Mm -hmm. So I would I would have liked it if he was more of a household name still like, you know, um, like these these old guys that we, we read now, like Robert E. Howard and H.P. Lovecraft. But strangely enough, he's not. He's considered second tier by many, which I think is unfair. Still, we got this fantastic movie out of it. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. yeah, one of his properties made it to film in 1962, Conjure Wife. Yeah, pretty interesting. Yeah, and then, like you said, some of the people behind the scenes there, too, the director was uh, Sidney Hayes, who I know for sure he did one other film I've seen, at least uh, Circus of Horrors, because that's uh, Christopher Lee. And I think he did a ton of TV work, too. Um, but like you said, screenplay-wise, we had some... Uh, other faces behind the scenes there. And one of them, probably the biggest one I would think is Richard Matheson. We've talked about him before, you know, he was, Oh yeah. You know, tons of TV, Western sci-fi, you know, and then he's, you know, the Omega man and the devil rides out and some of those Corman Poe films, uh, Kolchak, the night stalker. So he was just, you know, huge, um, behind things with, uh, writing some books and screenplays and all that kind of stuff. But then you had George Baxt, who's, uh, a British guy that had been around too, you know, he did city of the dead and you know, more on that later. <laughs> and then oh, yeah. he also did shadow of the cat, which is a hammer film, which is an interesting film. I don't think it's one of their better films, but it's definitely worth a watch too. But, you know, we also, uh, mentioned off mic for a minute there. Uh, another one of the names is Charles Beaumont. Oh yes. Yes. Charles Beaumont. Um, he died too soon. I think he was one of the greatest, uh, screenwriters and horror writers or horror short story writers i should say of his uh, age and um he made a name for himself on the twilight zone right billy and um mm -hmm. you know nowadays he's become more popular again because they're reprinting his uh, short fiction collections and he's really one of those seminal voices in horror where he's c almost completely unique you know I, I, almost like lovecraft except he was a better writer than lovecraft if you know what i mean he had more popular appeal yeah, um, but he's very unique. Um, so he also made a buck by screenwriting, just like Richard <laughs> Matheson did. And I think he got the most, uh, you know, out of his screenwriting career. Uh, you know, his fiction never sold all that well, even though it's so amazing, you know, because he never wrote a novel. Mm -hmm. You know, I think um, at least not that I know of, um, I, you know, I think he was only invested in short stories. So Charles Beaumont, big name, almost bigger than. I would say, um, you know, Fritz Lieber in many cases, not bigger than Matheson, certainly not, because Matheson wrote many, you know, horror novels. Fritz Lieber only wrote a few, but um, I'd say he's, he's up there. You know, he's very, very close to, to Matheson's st uh, status as a horror master, a grand master of horror. Yeah, not too many other big names involved with, with this one, though, like even the, the music, which I thought was pretty good for this film, uh, William Alwyn. Uh, the only thing I could find on him that he did that I recognized right away was the, I think it was a Disney film that, you know, from back in the, well, I think it was the sixties, the Swiss family Robinson, which I love that when I was a kid. <laughs> oh a yeah. Fun. I mean, I, I don't know any of the things he did. I did look him up a little bit. He did a lot of films that I, I didn't even watch in the 1950s and things like killers of Kilimanjaro and third man on the mountain and <laughs> the silent enemy. Uh, you know, the names are familiar, but I didn't watch them, but he's got a huge, I don't know, in excess of a uh, hundred, um, 
sound. Oh no, well he's got twelve soundtracks, but he's he's he composed more than a hundred uh, songs for film, and mm-hmm. uh, you know so he he definitely had a great career. It's just we might not know the things you know that he you know is known for because we didn't watch those movies. Mm-hmm. So yeah, but um, the, uh, some names on these, right, Billy? But I think they they didn't stand the test of time. If you if you think about the great composers, great directors, the great actors, none of them, even though they're very competent at their jobs in this in this film. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I read some really wild stuff about this film. You know, whether these were just rumors or with, whether this was true or not, I couldn't find out. You know, one hundred percent for sure, but. I had read somewhere that it said Peter Cushing was actually offered the starring role in this film, but he decided to do Captain Clegg with Hammer instead, which is an awesome film, and he was fantastic in that. So I'm glad he did that, but that would have been interesting if he would have been the lead in this film. (laughs) Yeah, man, I would have enjoyed that even more, even though, you know, we got a great lead, you know, um, in this film. Peter Cushing, of course, a master. There's no way you can eclipse him, but... Um, you know, I think um, for for my mind, at least, um, Peter Wingard, um, who plays Norman Taylor, he did a great job, too. He's he's very Cushing-like, at, at least in his diction and his, uh, you know, um, phrase, his turn of phrase. Um, maybe not, obviously not as great as the great man Cushing, but, you know, he's not a, he's, he's a great actor, actually, this Peter Wingard guy. And he had a fantastic career as well. But wow, if Cushing was part of this, I think this would have been elevated to even more of a classic status than it enjoys now. Yeah, I think so, too. But yeah, like you said, Peter Wingard, he was the starring role as uh, a college professor, uh, Norman Taylor. Uh, And then you had his wife in the film, uh, Tansy, who was played by Janet Blair. I saw some people kind of act as if, you know, when she didn't do such a great job or they thought she was miscast or, you know, they could have done better. But I don't know. I thought she did pretty good in this role. Yeah, I disagree with them. You know, same as you, Billy. I enjoyed her in this role. She had this um, your real sense of dread on her face throughout the movie, which was what was called for by the script, obviously. And uh, she she sold that well, I thought. Obviously, it's a different style of acting than what we're used to now. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? But um, yeah. I think most of these actors, having been classically trained, you know, they they came up on the stage, um, you know, uh, both in, you know, the UK and in Britain, of course, uh, and in, sorry, I should say the States, uh, mm-hmm. the same same kind of deal back then. Uh, you know, they have this re- very uh, classical way of, of um, you know, delivering their lines and, and especially with the British accent, it makes it sound even more archaic. But I don't <laughs> think that takes away anything from her acting, you know, it's a... Uh, her acting was pretty great. I felt the 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 fraught atmosphere, you know, the the palpable sense of danger throughout the movie. And um, without special effects, this is accomplished by facial expressions and about you know obviously the the score of the movie, but also you know how the the actors are told by the director to react to a situation that they probably don't know what's happening at that point in the script. You know, they're just told by the director, and I think they sold it pretty well. Most of the time, I felt the the urgent sense that you know there's something looming um and and that was given to us by peter wingard and of course uh tansy his wife um who is janet blair yeah so i think she's great yeah it was a pretty small cast um uh margaret johnston who played the kind of uh uh the uh i don't know what you want to call her the antagonist antagonist to uh tansy uh flora carr um, and I did recognize her. Uh, she was in an amicus film, The Psychopath. 
And I do remember her, you know, it's a few years later. And actually in that film, she's, you know, I think got some makeup on to make her look even a bit older. But uh, she was in that right. film, too. But I thought she was pretty good in this one. She, like you said, the she plays the antagonist in this one. And I thought she was pretty good. And then <laughs> the guy that played her husband in the film, he didn't have a big <laughs> part. But he was pretty funny. Uh. And then his his bit, you know, he has a couple of lines at the very end of the movie that I just make me laugh every time. And that was uh, Colin Gordon. He played uh, Lindsay Carr, her husband. <laughs> yeah, her husband. Yeah. Oh, man, he's great. He's the comedic relief, actually. There's not a lot of comedy in this movie, right, <laughs> Billy? This. No. Uh, hardly any. But he sort of brings it because he's totally clueless. He doesn't know what's going on. Um, you know, he's living in his own little reality <laughs> and uh, all of these supernatural events happening right under his nose. Mm-hmm. You know, so, yeah, that's his, his wide eyed, you know, gaping expression is normally what, what sets me to giggles. But uh, you're right. Uh, he, he acted well, too, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, that's why there was such a small cast, because after all, the, the setting of the film is on a on a small town college campus mm-hmm. where, you know, most of the, the, the people are either lecturers students or their significant others you know the the Mm -hmm. wives of the the male uh, professors at this college campus so um you know very small cast and that that worked i think Mm -hmm. because uh you know they uh you don't get confused you know really between uh, even though there's supposed to be a huge body of students around they they sort of when they do focus on a student they sort of single one out Mm -hmm. and then you know they don't bother with the rest the rest are just filler so you're right, five or six people at most, you see them, you know, continuously. And that, that works for this kind of a film. You know, it's almost like a location horror. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, very enjoyable. Yeah, I mean, there were only a couple of locations in the film. You know, basically it was uh, their home. And then, the, like you said, the campus of this, uh, like, small British university, like a medical college. And then there's one little quick road scene and a little quick scene at a uh, a beach house you know a a cabin Mm. by a by a beach there you know that's that's about it in the whole movie but that's you really don't need anything more than that it's there's you know some tension and you know things like that in the movie that you know really kind of ramp up because for a little while you don't know who the antagonist is in this movie and then you know it's kind of revealed and there's a lot of craziness going on in there. So, yeah, it's it's pretty good. You know, it's like I said, for a, an hour and 24 minutes, basically, it's uh, it keeps you on the edge of your seat and keeps you guessing and wondering what's going to happen next. So that's that's perfect. Yeah, you're right. It's riveting. And the black and the fact that it's in black and white still much like City of the Dead, that adds to the horror for me. I don't know if you would agree with that, Billy, but I find that way more sinister, you know, not actually knowing what's going to come from which shadowy nook or cranny. <laughs> You know, what's going to leap out at you. And mm-hmm. uh, black and white, you know, movies do that to me. The old Universals and, of course, the the 1950s fare from British studios. You know, I, I, I enjoy that. Of course, I'd always prefer color. But here they use this to great effect. The fact that it's black and white and, um, you know, conveys this eerie uh, setting and atmosphere. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And one of the things is there's there's no blood in this movie because it's not there's no real you know gore to it at all which obviously if you have color that kind of helps with that although you know psycho did it in black and white and it was fine too but you know we've talked about before how hammer you know had you know kind of the first to be like in color and here's the blood and um, mm. that's just what they're known for and i love it too but this yeah this being in black and white 
I love it. I think it was a, a perfect uh, choice. Yeah, definitely. No doubt about it. Okay, so I think we're going to take a quick break here, and I'm going to uh, insert the trailer for this one, and then we're going to come right back and get right into the movie. So uh, stay tuned, everybody. Burn, witch, burn. supernatural powers her scientific husband denies exists? I want some kind of explanation. But is it obvious? I'm a witch. Can another woman's fiendish jealousy possess and injure her? Don't answer. Hello. Hang up, Norman! Take me in your arms. Oh, Norman. After you've undressed me with your eyes, I hunt. Is this woman really a voodoo witch, conjuring evil spirits to do her sinister bidding? Shocking powers of witchcraft. Powers that can even bring a stone eagle to life. Okay, we're back, everybody. So I'm just going to do a little synopsis here, and it's going to take us, you know, maybe a third or halfway through the film, and then uh, Herman and I are going to just discuss the rest. And yeah, spoilers ahoy. So if you haven't seen this one, it's going to be some spoilers. And if you haven't, just, you know, we already mentioned where you can find it. Uh, go out, watch it, and then, uh, and then listen to the show. It'll make it that much more enjoyable. <laughs> okay, so at a small British university, Professor Norman Taylor played by Peter Wingard, is giving a lecture about the supernatural and how to debunk it. Two students in particular stand out, Margaret, who seems to be infatuated with her teacher, while Fred seems to be enraged by that possibility. After class, Harvey, a colleague, asks Norman if Bridge is still on tonight at his house. Norman says, of course, and heads home. Once there, his lovely wife, Tansy, played by Janet Blair, enters the room, and after a brief kiss, she tells Norman that she doesn't care for the company coming over. Speaking of the others, we see Evelyn, Harvey, and the edgy Flora. 
discussing how Norman looks to be in line for a promotion, and they believe it's too quick and undeserved. The following day, Norman begins to discover charms around the house. Later, Tansy comes home, and he confronts her about it. She tells him these charms and her conjure magic are the reason for his success and that there are other forces working against him. He tells her the items must be destroyed, but she warns him against it because then they'll be vulnerable to dark forces. He burns the items, and the following days, more and more bad things keep happening to Norman. Is it just coincidence, or was Tansy right? Okay, what did you think of this one, Herman? Yeah, I love the premise of this, Billy. It's sort of like um, taking the idea of behind every great man is a great woman, right? In this case, though, it is behind every... (laughs) Well, that's true. You and I both know that, right? Not that we're great men. <laughs> oh, for oh, for real. <laughs> Behind I every mean, my, average man is a great woman. <laughs> yeah, yeah, precisely. I mean, Aaron and probably uh, Marie, uh, your wife, would probably gleefully burn, you know, our comic book collections and probably some of our DVDs <laughs> too, if they could get the chance <laughs> as effigies. <laughs> but um, you know, uh, point being that you know this is an idea that was floating out particularly during the 50s, right? This was very popular, you know, like um, a great man has a good housewife waiting for him, you know, keeping the nest nice and fluffy back home and uh, making everything run smoothly in the kitchen, most notably. So this is the same idea, except the premise here is brilliantly, you know, devised by Lieber. Behind every great man is a great witch. (laughs) (laughs) All the women seemingly at least in the novel here, they only focus on two, but um, it's implied that there are more like a coven Mm -hmm. of witches at least, but they don't all work together. In fact, they're all out to get each other. All the women in the cast and in the, in the film. And then of course, in the, in the book, in the novel seem to have a predilection for witchcraft and they all hide this from their men. They're living a secret Mm -hmm. life. It's almost like Harry Potter where everybody, you know, the, the, the magicals hide themselves from the muggles. Mm -hmm. Now, in this world that Lieber has created in his novel and brought forth in the movie, it's like all the men are the muggles and all the <laughs> women are the magicals, right, Billy? Mm-hmm. But but it seems that women need to be initiated into this witchcraft, though, somehow. You know, they, they come to it from various different means, and we'll get into that later. But Tansy, you know, the wife of Norman, mm-hmm. Tansy Taylor, she is a very powerful witch, and she has been sort of uh, supporting or championing or even um, affecting for the better, for the positive, Norman's career throughout, you know, for the, for the last couple of uh, years or, yeah, it might be a little bit less than the last, maybe the last year or so, through these charms, this conjure magic she's been using, um, which sort of seems to be centered around these little effigies that she creates and also, um, you know, uh, talismans that she scatters around the house and uh, you know things like uh, packets full of graveyard uh, or or you know gravesite dirt uh, soil and um, you know little you know uh, voodoo dolls that she makes from twine or something like that (laughs) so these things and also like a spider in a A dead spider makeup kit or something yeah (laughs) (laughs) so it's uh, scattered around the house and this ensures good fortune and it's been working because norman well in tansy's mind it's been working because norman has had nothing but a string of good luck you know he's he's up for a promotion at the college you know um he's he's gotten this uh this posh job at this is this uh 
esteemed British college. Of course, in the novel, this is a New England college because Fritz Lieber, at least, well, he was an American here. This is mm -hmm. obviously set in the UK. So he's in somewhere in England, in Britain, and he's the, now a professor at this esteemed college. And this is all because of Tansy's good luck charms and her conjure magic, as it's called. They can conjure good luck. Now, Billy, the opposite is also true, of course. Bad luck can be conjured. And it, it turns out Tansy's protective charms has, has been keeping the bad luck at bay because of, you know, she's a very powerful witch. So the good luck that, that has um, followed Norman around has made him some enemies, especially from the wives of the other professors, particularly mm -hmm. one, one of mm -hmm. their, their wives, the most jealous of the lot. And she is actively trying to derail his career and even end his life, as it turns out later on. <laughs> I mean, she, she, there's, there's no telling where she would stop. Um, and uh, Tansy's magic has been keeping that those bad luck uh, spells that is are being leveled towards Norman at bay, right, Billy? Mm -hmm. So that's essentially it. The premise is brilliant. Witches having this secret war, female witches having this... Well, all witches are female, I think. I mean, <laughs> there are no warlocks here, right? But mm -hmm. female witches having this war with each other, the secret war, and the husbands are all just oblivious and they're walking around. But, you know, Norman Taylor's smarter than most, Billy. What happens in the, in the at, at least in the, the, the first third, I'd say, of the novel, this happens. He's the only one of the men who actually, you know, he starts to suspect something. Yeah, the other ones seem absolutely oblivious. But, you know, they do go into it a little bit that uh, the two of them had been on vacation in, where was it, Jamaica, mm. I believe? Yeah. And that's where that's right. Tansy got introduced to, you know, this conjure magic and, of course, you know, him being this professor that's trying to debunk it all the time. He thinks it's nonsense. But like you said, behind his back, she's like, yeah, you keep thinking that, but I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. And um, like I said, in the synopsis, too, like once he, you know, kind of flips out on her and burns all the stuff, uh, all of a sudden, just little silly things like coincidental things happen. Like he almost gets run over by a truck uh, yeah. on his way into the campus. But then, you know, that... Uh, young lady the student that's kind of infatuated with him you know she uh and at Concocts the time this he, weird yeah. story right yeah wow. she yeah she basically says that he sexually assaulted her and he did get a phone call uh, two nights before this um at his home and you heard this you know girl's voice and he didn't know it was her at the time but you heard this you know female voice saying about you know you know, she's kind of like giving him a, like a, a some phone sex. <laughs> and he hung <laughs> up on her. <laughs> That's and, right. Yeah, and then he comes into work Monday morning, and he gets told, "Hey, you have to go see the the dean because uh, that student's in his office." And she said that you you know, I can't remember what terms they use. They don't say sexually assaulted, of course, because it's take advantage of her or something like that. Maybe they say, but you know, that's the the gist of it. That you know, he assaulted her, and you know, he goes and confronts her about it. And then that's when we learn that she is the, I think they call it a ward, but I guess, you know, she is being looked after uh, by uh, the other uh, person, the other big personality in this movie, uh, Flora. Yeah, Flora Carr, that is, we can go ahead and say it, right, I believe Tansy's main antagonist. Uh, we see her in the beginning 
of the movie uh, when I think it was Norman and Tansy. Well, it was wasn't so much Tansy. It was more Norman who invited some of his colleagues and their wives over to their place to Norman Tansy's place to for a game of cards, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and, and it appears that it's a it's a, a weekly thing every Friday night. Right. This happens. And then because of their success and their great home, Flora, you know, while she's playing cards, she she hates, you know, Tansy because Tansy's well, arguably better than she is, right? At least in a in a more goodly sense, her magic is more, you know, um, I would say beneficial to mm-hmm. her husband, Norman. Whereas Flora, who's got this mean streak, her magic has not served <laughs> to elevate her husband. It can only affect evil, at least in the movie, right, Billy? It seems right. that's where her talents lie. So, you know, she shows up in the beginning. She looks suitably sinister. She's got all these weird looks that she gives people all the time. Right. Mm-hmm. Sometimes she looks at Norman and uh, she looks at him in disdain. But other times she looks at, you know, him and she has this look of pure hatred on her face, like she's being <laughs> challenged. And she looks at her husband with this look of, um, you know, like a, a pet who's annoying you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't know how to describe that. But, yeah, she she indulges him because she's her he's kind of her cover. Right. Her mm-hmm. her, uh, you know, that allows her a semblance of normalcy. But she's this this powerful witch behind the scenes who's almost running the entire campus until Tansy and Norman arrived. And now she's being challenged. Someone's muscling in on her territory and she's doing her utmost. In fact, that very night when she shows up for I think it was they were playing bridge or something. Right. Believe. Yep. Uh, mm-hmm. Then when they leave, Tansy discovers, you know, some, you know, problems in the house and her charms are all still uh around they're still effective but she discovers that um flora in fact weaved a little evil effigy uh like a voodoo doll into one of her lampshades <laughs> right so <laughs> so so flora uh, this flora witch she's been actively trying to uh probe or test tansy's defenses so far tansy's been able to you know negate the bad effects or the evil will of Flora Carr. But, you know, after P- after Norman discovers all the magical paraphernalia and gets rid of it, that's when, you know, the doors are left wide open for, for evil to come uh, to come knocking. <laughs> and, and it does so. So, believe, but then we should also mention um, Norman, you know, he's a very popular college professor, especially among his female students, right? Like we mentioned, mm-hmm. the one that has a crush on him, but most of them seem to have a crush on him right and this one guy who's involved with the the very girl the very girl who starts to accuse uh, norman of sexual assault um mm. uh, what's her name uh, margaret margaret right? margaret abbott yeah yeah margaret so um her boyfriend he starts to develop uh, a hatred for norman because he he can sense the affection that his girlfriend feels for norman and the attraction and so um, he also decides to blackmail Norman later on <laughs> after hearing the story of how Norman, well, Norman never sexually assaulted this lady. It's all been co- uh, concocted by his girlfriend, but he bla- tried to blackmail him for better grades. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, and then they he do... tried to shoot him in the back. What? Yeah. He did pull a gun on him, but I think I'm not sure about that 100%, but. I think we we know, you know, just from really watching and how things are that Flora, you know, I don't know if she had a voodoo doll of Margaret or what, but that she, you know, uh, yes. somehow psychically or whatever, coerced Margaret into 
making that phone call and then saying that, you know, he he sexually assaulted her. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. It's a lot more intricate and, and sinister than, than you would think. This girl was not just a lovesick girl who thought that she would never be able to be with, you know, uh, Professor Taylor. It, she, was a, she was actually a very rational, one of his best students, in fact, mm-hmm. right, Billy? And um, she did have a crush on him, but she wouldn't have gone to these insane lengths to uh, besmirch his reputation. What, mm-hmm. in fact, happened is exactly what you said. Uh, her uh, guardian you know, mm-hmm. uh, Flora, mm-hmm. uh, she took it upon herself to mind control this girl through a, through a voodoo, you know, doll or, mm-hmm. or some, some such, you know, magical object. And then, you know, forced her to make that call, forced her to say everything because, um, later on, Margaret recants, you know, she sort of says she doesn't know why she did it. You know, she, she was not being herself. She couldn't help herself. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She cracks, she breaks down in tears. So yeah, you're exactly right. This is all a scheme you know, um, you know, thought up by Flora Carr to finally get rid of the tailors. Yeah. And then her, you know, the, like you said, the uh, guy in the, in the class, the young man in the class, uh, I think he's a uh, Fred Jennings. He's really pissed off about it because he likes Margaret and she, he sees her, you know, going after Norman. And then when this whole thing blows up, he goes in there and like you said, tries to say he's going to go to the Dean and he wants better grades and this and that. And when, <laughs> the professor you know taylor kind of throws him out and's like get out of here you know the next time we see him he's threatening him with a gun <laughs> and then oh man it, it, it doesn't last long though because <laughs> you know professor taylor's no slouch he's pretty smart he kind of is like you know he realizes he could be in a little trouble here so he's like oh uh jennings yes i spoke to the dean and we're gonna get you those grades and everything's gonna be okay and he he talks to him enough to like get close to him and then just pimp slaps him <laughs> the guy drops the gun and he it off of him <laughs> that's right he immediately you know like you say uh takes seizes control of the situation he's kind of like that at home too when he's confronted with something he doesn't like because billy like you said he's a skeptic he doesn't believe in all this uh, supernatural paraphernalia in fact he is a professor of sociology and anthropology his job is to debunk all of these superstitious traditions mm-hmm. that's why they were in jamaica you know doing some field research Mm-hmm. He wrote papers on it. He's got this famous speech, which plays a major role in the plot, right, Billy, which he, uh, a lecture mm-hmm. that had been recorded for, you know, um, other, you know, obviously other professors to use because it's such a seminal, uh, you know, um, lecture that he gave. And um, he's, a, he's got a recording of it. The university's got a recording of it. And it, it's all about how this is, um, you know, uh, BS, you know, the whole supernatural angle to tradition and, and to a ritual and to superstition. Um, mm-hmm. It's all about how that, you know, is ineffective ultimately. So he, rubbish. I mean, this, yeah, rubbish. This is sort of, you know, a creationism versus Darwinism thing, but it's even almost <laughs> even worse than that, because in this case, he's proven wrong. <laughs> there is such a thing as magic. It's all over his house. His wife believes in it. Um, and, you know, when she, she realizes the danger they're in, you know, mm-hmm. once he destroys everything. And after that, it's very much a, uh, a case of just Tansy trying to find another way to protect uh, Norman. Mm-hmm. Uh, because he's the main target, right, Billy? Yeah. And, and she's, the, she's the secondary target. But, you know, now that all of her charms have been thrown out, Flora's got a free hand. Flora can, you know, do whatever she wants to Norman. And mm-hmm. Tansy sort of takes it upon herself to find another way to protect him. And she does so. She wants to literally 
offer herself as a sacrifice, you know, as a, <laughs> as she wants to draw the bad luck away from him yeah. uh, through a ritual that she's planning. And uh, I found that that very endearing too, because, you know, it shows how much she loves him mm-hmm. and uh, he loves her too. There's no way he would ever, you know, canoodle with any of his students. You, you, you get that impression. You know, he's a very dedicated guy, dedicated to her and to the family. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's, it's a great dynamic between them. And like we, we said earlier, the, the acting between these actors, you know, sells it, it sells it really well. I can, their relationship is very genuine and uh, they've got some chemistry, not, not the chemistry we're, uh, you know, familiar with these days in Hollywood, but I, you, you know, you can see that these two, they've rehearsed together. They, they you know, they, they act naturally around each other, even if it's very formal and, and a little bit, you know, not, not something we, we'd be used to in the 21st century, but you know, I, I like that. So it, they sold it really well. Yeah. And like you said, when she, you know, concocts this plan that, she's basically going to sacrifice herself uh, to save her husband. She jumps on a bus to go to their, you know, beachside uh, cabin to do the deed. And she leaves him like a voice recording saying what she's going to do. So he gets in his car and he's, you know, doing a hundred miles an hour trying to catch up to this bus. And he does. And he's on the wrong side of the road, yelling to her on the bus, trying to get her attention. And he almost has a head on collision with a, like a van and, goes off and crashes his car and you know it's there like i said there's a lot of tension there in it because he's like trying to get to her in time because then he's got to get you know his vehicle smashed up so he's got to find another way to get there and is he going to get there in time because i think she said in the recording it was going to be like by midnight is when it was going to happen and you know he does get there just in the nick of time but you know she's still like in this like almost like a trance-like state and you know, without the charms and in that trance like state, she's even, you know, half out of it that she's very vulnerable uh, to Flora, who tries to, you know, basically use a voodoo doll to <laughs> take over her her brain. And then what does she do? <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, well, she basically forces yeah, Tansy to try to take Norman's life, <laughs> which is, is the ultimate dick move well what would you call it from a lady i don't know but still you know she's <laughs> uh, you know now that tansy's powerless she's using tansy as her blunt instrument to you know um and and that would uh, sort of drive the nail into the coffin even further billy because what presumably once tansy has done the deed she would also suffer from the guilt mm-hmm. you know so this is sort of flora saying she's taking out two birds with one stone one she's she's completely taking off the table norman by mur- by having tansy murder him but tansy's is going to make s- her suffer horribly and she's probably going to be committed to a mental institution for the rest of her life so she's really cleaning house here man but mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah that's essentially what happens yeah yeah and then it's funny too because it's not anything you're, it's a little subtle but when she's coming after norman you know tansy while she's like kind of under the spell of Flora, she he doesn't notice it at first, but he thinks back. And when she's coming towards him, she kind of has a limp. And his wife doesn't have a limp, but Flora does. So then that's when Norman's really starting to question, you know, everything because he's this cynic, but he's having all these things happen to him that are not so great after Tansy said, if we get rid of all these charms and this and that, it's going to go bad and it's going bad. And then he sees that limp and he's like, wait a minute, my wife doesn't have a limp and Flora does like what's going on here. So he goes to her office to confront her, which is a really interesting part. 
Yeah, you're right, man. He he has been. I mean, his faith has been shaken, you know, in his own, you know, science. And he even before this, he even tried his hand at some voodoo himself. Do you remember when he followed Tansy to the beach cabin? Yeah, uh, where he lit the candles and tried to effect a ritual, which he saw from Tansy's notes, right? Mm-hmm. Or from her, and and it didn't work, so he just ended up smashing the candles. But um, you know, the point is, he he's still not firmly you know, a believer in the supernatural until this moment that you mentioned, right, Billy, where he's he's seeing Flora. Well, yeah. he's seeing Tansy with Flora's limp, which means that, you know, obviously uh, Flora is in some form of control of, of Tansy's mind. And that's mm-hmm. when he, you know, his belief, or I should say his disbelief completely evaporates. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it's sort of, it's a great, you know, um, Saw a story of a one man losing his mind and then regaining it, but you know the puzzle pieces have all been rearranged in a different pattern this time around, <laughs> because yeah. he goes nuts there for a while. Poor mm-hmm. Norman does, you know, because he's being confronted with this new reality that he can't make sense of, mm-hmm. and uh, and also he's actively being driven insane mm-hmm. by uh, Flora Carr as well. You know, if she can't kill him, she's gonna, you know, make him uh, have a schizophrenic episode or something <laughs> yeah he he goes to her office to confront her about it and she basically you know reveals herself as a you know a witch also and then she uh breaks out some tarot cards and builds them into like you know the shape of a house and lights them on fire and basically tells him that his home is on fire with tansy inside burning and he's like yeah yeah sure it is and he tries to put on a good poker face but when he goes out into the hallway he's like sweating bullets because he's not sure of anything right now yeah exactly i mean um he's starting to to kind of feel the fear of of the fact that tansy's life could really be in in danger right but he's still holding on to the a hope that this is all you know just crazy women you know hysterical ladies you know Mm -hmm. with with delusions of magic but um then you know she does kind of use you know what is almost her final um, card in the in the deck, right? Which is a, a magical spell or some such, right, Billy? Where she's mm-hmm. trying to uh, affect his mind by playing this recording of his mm-hmm. as he's trying to leave the campus grounds to well, not the campus grounds, their houses on campus, but to to leave the building to try to save Tansy. She sort of tries to um, corral him in this building, forcing him to stay by playing his recording over the loudspe- over the speaker system, right? Mm-hmm. So the PA system or whatever they called it. So yeah, this, this has some magic associated with it because he, in fact, then starts to lose his grip on, you know, his sanity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, That's a great he... part, too. He's well acted by <laughs> Peter Wingard there, right? Oh yeah, he does very well there. It's like I said, it's it's very very good acting in this film. And he starts trying to get out of the building, and there is a giant statue of an eagle over the top of the building, and it basically, you know, in his mind, comes to life and starts trying to kill him. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yes. Uh-huh. I mean, this is where the 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 title "Night of the Eagle" sort of comes from. This eagle has a uh, has a lot to do with it because we see it. Throughout the movie, um, it's this giant statue, like you say, of an eagle, and it's uh, it's outside the the building where I think uh, Flora and her husband uh, Lindsay live, right? Billy, it's uh, sort of perched on this uh, ledge, 
mm-hmm. and it it doesn't seem to it well it it's obviously a part of the uh, building, but it seems to be detachable because I mean that's the only explanation I have for what happens later on. But you know, <laughs> this eagle is she she tries to use it to kill poor Norman, mm-hmm. and um, later the tables are turned. But we won't spoil that yet. But that's the where the name of the film hails from, and I like that more than Burn Witch Burn. Mm-hmm. I mean, Burn Witch Burn is also a great title, but um, you know, referring to Tansy in the house. Mm-hmm. Which which has gone up in flames, which is a very traditional way of killing a witch. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's ironic that another witch is using that to yeah. kill a witch. But you know, if you think about it, Billy, there could there's a conspiracy theory that all the 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 evil witches of history. This is only you know uh, you know uh, supported by by Christians and so forth. <laughs> that all the evil witches of history secretly, you know, uh, um, arranged for scapegoats to be burned at the stake. That's why so many innocent women died because <laughs> they misled the the inquisitors and the the witch hunters. Yeah, <laughs> so it's kind of like twins. saying we're, yeah, it's kind I'm of like saying we're not responsible. Twins of evil. <laughs> I'm thinking twins of evil here, Hammer like exactly, <laughs> those crazy yeah. puritan dudes, but yeah, so he but, it, Norman eventually, you know, uh gets away, quote unquote from the eagle that's trying to kill him. And does run to his home, and it's like burning, like in crazy burning, like you can't even get into it. He's trying to rush into the house because he thinks Tansy's still in there, but thank God she got out. But um, you know, the two of them kind of embrace, and he's like, you, know, you can tell it's the look on his face is like, I really believe now. And then we switch back over to the college, the university there, and you see Flora and her husband. Oh, he's the best. He delivers a, you know, my my favorite line of the movie here it's like <laughs> it's uh not even close but this is my favorite line of the movie her and, her and uh, Lindsay, they start walking like they're going you know to their place and all of a sudden he looks and there's a door open and he goes who the deuce left this door open <laughs> <laughs> who the deuce <laughs> and he goes over to shut the door and flora's like just leave it go let it go somebody will get it we'll get it tomorrow morning or whatever he's like oh i'll take care of it and she kind of goes after him and then we have the, the the big ending of the movie here where that giant eagle statue, like you said, somehow <laughs> uh, comes detaches crashing down. Itself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it detaches itself from, well, the, the top of the parapet it was on and uh, mm-hmm. three floors up, right, Billy? And this this thing's at least three or four times the weight of a, of a man. Oh, at and least. it comes crashing down right on top of poor poor flora and she's buried under it i mean this is the part they could have inserted even some black blood pooling out from under the statue they did not go Mm -hmm. that route they didn't really need to because it's not a film focusing on gore but this is arguably the goriest scene of the movie not arguably this is definitely right this is a horrific death suffered by flora and um very uh fitting for her to die like that. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was wild. I was wondering why, you know, like I said, Night of the Eagle, what that has to do with anything? But at that point, you're like, okay, so that's where they got this name from. <laughs> exactly, man. Um, uh, so, you know, the Eagle plays a prominent role twice, at least in two scenes, you know, one time mm-hmm. against Norman. And of course, then at the ending to, to deliver the coup de grace <laughs> for mm-hmm. the forces of good, at least for Tansy, because presumably Tansy had something to do with this, right? She had sort of reestablished her her power. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, you know, like I said, this is an excellent, you know, off the radar horror film. You know, not 
to to like the non-hardcore, you know, and especially British horror fans. And the cast is absolutely fantastic, you know, as is the screenplay, the sets. Um, uh, the cast is incredibly believable, you know, in their roles, their their ability, and the script are a fantastic formula here for this, uh, you know, in my opinion, a, a successful film because it uh, does a good job. It entertains you, and you know, like we said, it's a it's a great watch. Yeah, definitely one of the best endings of a horror movie that I can think of in my top 10 for sure, because it comes at, uh, from, well, it's so unexpected, right, Billy? And uh, mm-hmm. you've, you've been led to hate this woman, this Flora, up until mm-hmm. this point with, with a fierce intensity for, for all the evil, because she's thoroughly evil through and through. There's 100% evil. There's nothing re- redeemable about her at all. So, you know, basically, um, you know, she got her comeuppance in a in a very interesting and fitting way and and not just that it's just because of the the time that this film was made you know you you kind of expect a more generic ending no they they gave you a, a twist at the end a surprise and um it came so suddenly <laughs> you know that i was like yeah I was, <laughs> I was almost cheering when it happened so yeah yeah brilliant ending i agree with you thoroughly there for sure so all right man so i guess we can wrap things up here um just to, uh, you know, let people know if they want to seek you out, you know, they can definitely look for you on Twitter. You're uh, at Dark Longbox. And then, you know, like you said earlier, you have your podcast, uh, Longbox of Darkness, and then you and I on Into the Weird. Uh, look for us there as well. We actually, you know, have some new content just came out there recently. So look that up. And then also our new effort. Uh, I shouldn't say new. It's been around for a few months now. But our All-Star Squadron podcast, A World on Fire. You know, look for that as well, for sure. That's right. Everything we're into sounds a little bit uh, disparate, right, Billy? A little bit incongruous. <laughs> but actually, yeah, we've got a wide variety of interests. They all focus on movies and comic books, though, and novels. You know, we've we've discussed the novel Salem's Lot on a previous magazines and monsters, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, we briefly mentioned um, Fritz Lieber's novel Conjure Wife, which this movie's based on. But you know, we can't get into it too much um, simply because of the fact that there's not a lot of differences between the novel and the screenplay, which Lieber had a hand in writing. So, you know, mm-hmm. it's not like the, the Stephen King, Salem Slot TV movie and novel, um, you know, episode we did where we had to do almost two separate sections. Yeah. Uh, here it's, it's, it's very different. The, the novel's almost the same beat for beat with some uh, small differences, you know, where the setting is different and, uh, you know, a little bit of the character motivations are different, but that's basically all. So, yeah, I mean, we've got, like you say, so many other shows. So please check that out. If uh, horror fans are comic book fans, you'll definitely like all of our shows. But if you're only horror fans for the films, then, of course, magazines and monsters are where it's at. Yeah. So, yeah, we definitely want to just say, you know, next we're probably going to do a film we mentioned uh, earlier, uh, City of the Dead. You know, a a Christopher Lee classic there, like a proto amicus film, uh, honestly. So uh, we're probably going to do that one next and then. Maybe we'll jump back to Hammer after that. We'll see. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Billy, if you want to have me on, I'll I'm always be ready to talk horror with you, especially any Christopher Lee or Peter Cushing fair. Uh, mm-hmm. British horror in general. I, I'm completely in love with them, you know, whenever they tackle the horror genre, at least in the early, uh, well, 50s and 60s and 70s. <laughs> Nowadays, <laughs> it's debatable, but yeah, there's still some great films out there. So, Billy, I really appreciate having me on again. 
And uh, I'll be ready whenever you want to go to discuss City of the Dead, which I'm sure the listeners will enjoy equally as much as this film, Night of the Eagle. Absolutely. So, yeah, thank you again, buddy. I appreciate it immensely. And I will be back in a second here after a quick uh, transition to uh, close out the show. So I'll be right back. Okay, everybody, thanks for tuning in. Uh, That's it for episode eight. Once again, I'd like to thank my uh, buddy Herman for coming on the show and doing another movie discussion with me. We have a blast with these uh, classics, and we're going to talk about plenty more. Like we said, probably City of the Dead uh, next, which is another classic uh, British horror film. Uh, That one stars Christopher Lee, so uh, we'll have a lot to say about that one. So thanks for tuning in, and see you next time. Thanks. Thanks.